work of life is the work that we do inside ourselves. Responsibility we feel towards the world, like questioning, challenging, say something. Raw and vulnerable and open conversation. That was the best part. I'm so excited to be sharing this episode of Amory with you. Today, I am interviewing Kate Lurie. She's the author of Open Deeply, a guide to building conscious, compassionate, open relationships. Kate is a sex-positive licensed marriage and family therapist with a specialty in non-monogamous, kink, LGBTQ, and sex worker communities. She's been practicing psychotherapy since 2003 and has almost two decades experience in open relating herself, which I appreciate personally. Kate has many other credentials, just to name a few. She has an MBA, she's a registered art therapist, she's a certified sex educator, EMDR certified therapist with additional training in the trauma resiliency model. Whew, that's a mouthful. I'm sure you will hear in the podcast today that there's no lack of education or experience by Kate Lurie, and I know that you'll have some major takeaways from the podcast. I know that I did. I do hope that you get her book. Again, it's called Open Deeply, and you can find Kate on Instagram at Open Deeply with Kate Lurie, K-A-T-E-L-O-R-E-E. And uh, you can check out her website at katelurie.com. Without further ado, enjoy the podcast. But first, before you listen to the podcast, I want to take a moment and have some massive gratitude for our Emory patrons. Thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting us for a few months and some of you for a few years Uh, I know that we've got so many extra little goodies for you behind the Patreon paywall, but honestly, the feedback that we get from most of our patrons is that they just wanted to pay us for a little bit. They've been listening to Amory podcasts for months or years, and they finally decide to become a patron. So I just want to give a little love back and shout out to all of our patrons. If you are considering joining as a patron, share some love back with us. We would totally appreciate that. You can check it out at patreon.com backslash Emory podcast, or the link is in our bio. All right. Without further ado, enjoy the episode. So hi, Kate. Welcome to Emory. Hello. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I love your podcast. I I think you're bringing in so much good warmth and also just a positive message about non-monogamy. Oh, thank you. From a, a fellow podcaster, that means so much. Thank you, thank you. And I'm so excited to have you here personally because I can't wait to learn from you. I feel like you have this incredible depth and breadth of knowledge. And I'm so excited for Emory listeners to get to know you, to know how to find more about what you've written, what you've recorded. And I just want to dig straight into the conversation. Give our Emory listeners a little background into how did you get into the field of non-monogamy? Well, it didn't start immediately. I started being, I started working with clients while I was still in school back in, you know, I started, I went to school to be a therapist in 2002, started working with clients 2003. So a lot of my experience started out like working with mental illness in the clinics or trauma, that kind of thing. And I started out being an art therapist. But concurrently in 2003, that's when I shifted from an 11-year monogamous relationship to what would be a 13-year non-monogamous relationship where I was every type of non-monogamous you can think of. So that was going on concurrently. It wasn't until I opened up my practice in 2000, my private practice and moved out of the clinics in 2011, that I actually had clients before I had a space. I had to hustle to get a space because 
people in the non-monogamous community found out I was opening a private practice and they were like, oh my God, I want to come. I want a therapist that actually is walking the walk. Yeah. And I feel like that's so important because I hear time and time again, people, I, I love the realm of therapy. I think talking through things is incredible. I'm really glad that that exists. And when you start off-roading in relationships, if you don't have someone to talk to that understands the realm of ethical non-monogamy, it can get really crazy. So I can understand that there's a huge demand there. And I thank you for having your personal experiences. You've kind of married your professional life and your personal life, and you've put them together in this beautiful book that you are publishing. It should be published by the time we release this podcast called Open Deeply. And I, I would love to understand what was the, when did you realize that you wanted to put some of these learnings into book form? When did it hit you that you're like, this needs to get out into the world? And why did you decide to do that? Let's see, how did it start? It's hard to say because it was one of those things. I don't know if you've had this experience where sometimes you drive your destiny, but other times the universe kind of pulls <laughs> you along and with this, it was like, there's the universe has never been as loud as it has been around this book. It just kept on coming. Like everyone just kept on telling me to write this book and it just manifested in different ways. Even one time I was doing, a, you know, back, I think around 2016, I was doing a, a pranayama breathwork meditation. And I'm one of those folks that sees full on visions and, and that sort of thing when I do a breathwork meditation. And I was, usually I'll just listen and shut up. But this time I kind of said, uh, well, what about men? And my blue panther, who is kind of my fierce protector, she came on board and she doesn't actually speak. It's kind of like, it comes to me. She's kind of Grace Jones energy. She's fierce. <laughs> and she kind of scoffed and she was like, men. she's like, just write your book, write your book. So even, even in, in that way, uh, the universe was telling me to write that book. So I didn't write. Oh, I love that. Did you have a lot of resistant energy to it, or did you finally surrender into okay, okay, I'm listening. I'm going to do this. You know, it, it actually worked out nicely because I actually I had a double breakup in 2016. I ended a, a 13 year relationship and a two year relationship that year. And the other thing was that I I realized to do the kind of book that I wanted to do because this is not a simple book. I realized I had to walk away from everything because at the time, like, especially with the person I was in a two year relationship with, we were kind of, he was really well known too, because Buzzfeed was huge and he was a Buzzfeed guy. And so we would go places and people would be like, ah, you know, like we were going to all the parties, all the kink parties, all the non-monogamous parties. And so basically I just realized I had to walk away from all of that. And it, it's taken five years to create this book. And it's been a lot of a lot of being by myself with my three cats. It's a huge shift in lifestyle in order to create the book that I wanted to create. Wow. And what irony, too, because it's about relationships and how to open relationships and open successfully. And so much of your framework that I do want you to get into, share as much as you're willing to share here. But glancing through the framework of your book, I can't wait for this to get out into, into my hands, not, not to mention the hands of many, many more people, because I feel like you provide such a beautiful framework for how to, how to step into open relationships really consciously, really being aware of what it is that you want and how to move through this, this world that it can feel like the wild, wild west sometimes, to do it really consciously. So how interesting is that you had to kind of be in no relationship per se, except for the one with yourself, 
while you were digging up all of that. And on a side note, I've totally thought about that because I have two relationships now as well. And I have two kids and I'm like, God, I, I want to do more creative things, but there's just no, there's not enough time for it. So I've ironically thought to myself, well, if I wanted to write a book, I think I'd have to be in no relationships. <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was a dating cat lady during this ah. time. <laughs> Low key then, Correction made. <laughs> you know, I, I was really looking more for fun lovers than the deep dive. But with that said, yeah, the book is basically a manifestation of many things. What I noticed is clients would come into my practice my clients are really bright. They're very bright humans. So they've already read a lot of the books like The Ethical Slut and Opening Up and all of that. And they would come in, they're like, Kate, those books are great, but it's not helping us even a month in to our non-monogamous relationship. And regardless of whether I had a monogamous or a non-monogamous couple, it, it has nothing to do with relationship models. I found that people would come in and they were unconscious and reactive in the way they were relating to each other. Usually, as soon as they started to get a little cranky with each other in a session, they'd launch into what I call lawyering up, where it felt mm -hmm. like they were paralegal and they were trying to prove that the other person was right. And in doing so, they were invalidating the bejesus out of each other and neither person felt empathized with. So over time, I just realized I had to just like kind of break down everything and pull up something new. Oh my God. As you speak, I'm like guilty as charged. Guilty <laughs> as charged. I have totally done that. And I know when I get into that defensive mode of like, I have to prove my case, but you're right. We lose access. We lose access to what it is that we really want. You know, how do we get at what we really want? So that's why I feel like your book is so fundamental and I'm glad you brought up. It really doesn't matter what relationship structure you have. And I, I find myself saying that a lot too, is the skills that I've built having more than one relationship have helped. I think they just help in general. So tell me more about the framework and what you've put there and why it's so important for people to understand. Well, mostly in terms of the framework of how it unfolds, it just kind of organically came out of me. I'll just briefly say I had that book in my head for three years and I've never struggled with procrastination, but I had to hire a hypnotist to get over writer's block. And I started writing the very next day after that. So it just came out of me. There was a one time where across my floor in my house, I had kind of the outline and the sections and I was like restructuring things on my floor, you know, but in general, it came out organically. You know, it starts out, I talk about the basics, but I honestly just go through the basics like Mario and Andretti. I go through the basics, you know, very quickly, because let's face it, there's a ton of non-monogamous books, bloggers, speakers that have spoken about the basics till we're blue in the face. Mm -hmm. So I zoom through that incredibly quickly. So in my mind, the introduction is super important, but when you start out with part two, that's where the book really starts. And I start out talking about having compassion for your partner, you know, relationship blocks to having compassion for your partner, relationship blocks to having compassion for yourself. And I talk about how, you know, people in that are non-monogamous, they tend to think that communication is the cornerstone. And yes, it's important, but I would say that compassion is even more important because all you have to do is have, you know, watch two lawyers that are dating each other in an argument, they are great at communication, but oftentimes in the pooper when it comes to compassion and nothing, nothing is moving forward. No, I'm laughing as the daughter of a lawyer. So yes, <laughs> understood. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I talk about the compassion and all the, the blocks there, and I could certainly talk about those things. And eventually I, I do talk about things like, what if you're dating somebody that's depressed or what if you're dating someone that's narcissistic? There's, there's sections on mood disorders and personality disorders. But then I go into talking about what triggers are and attachment styles and, and how our past injuries can get projected into our primary relationship and what ha happens neurobiologically when we're even low-key triggered in our body, how to ground yourself, how to ground your partner. And then my communication style, which I call the epic communication style, uh, blends everything together. Uh, on a side note, when you think about all the great communication models, whether you're talking about nonviolent communication or you're talking about the Imago dialogue, as far as I know, none of these thought leaders, which they're all they're all brilliant, I'll give them that, but none of them ever say, oh, by the way, none of this will work if you're dysregulated in your body at all. 100%. I just saw, I think that's starting to come up into the cultural zeitgeist of understanding how important our nervous system regulation is. And yeah, you're so, you said something about grounding your partner. Could you speak to that a little bit more? That caught my attention because I feel like I've, I'm not an expert by any means, but I feel like I can get myself into being grounded myself. And then I recognize when I'm with one of my partners or even my kids for that matter, if they're not grounded. So any practices or little hints that you can give us around that area? Yeah, well, one thing, one mistake people make is they assume that they know how to ground their partner. So they can see that their partner is dysregulated, sometimes even before the partner knows, and they'll reach out and touch the partner or something like that. And the partner might be in that place of, don't touch me, you know, like super mm -hmm. mad or super upset. Number one, don't assume that you know how to ground them. Number two, it's best to have this conversation when you're not having a, a hard conversation, like talk to each other, like, when you're upset, um, but you're not so upset with me that you don't want me to touch you, <laughs> what are some things that would help you feel grounded? And a lot of those things are not verbal. A lot of times think, people think saying the right words is going to be the thing that grounds their partner when 95% of the time what grounds another person is, is uh something body-based, like being spooned or having their head pet or, you know, some pressure maybe on the shoulders or being held, you know, different things like that. Yeah, no, you're right. I'm checking myself on where, where do I make assumptions? And yeah, it is really hard if my partner, I have one partner that I feel like I can't touch when he's really upset, but I always want to hug. So that's a hard, <laughs> that's a hard balance to strike there. Yeah, yeah, I think people get very focused on their words and they don't realize the impact of their their tone and how rapidly they're speaking. And they don't even realize that they're dysregulating their partner by, by the volume of their speech, the tone of their speech. All of these things are getting registered in the body. You know, a lot of times when people don't feel heard, they're so, they'll start yelling and they don't realize that they're they're talking quickly with a more abrasive voice and a louder voice. And meanwhile, their partner is completely responding as if they're a bear about to eat their face and they are dissociated. They're checked out. Their heart is racing and nothing is getting through. No. Yeah. Thank you. From I, I always call these bookmarks. I feel like for any listeners, this is something to bookmark, right? To know when you're grounded, when you're calm, neutral, 
to talk about that with your partner to say, hey, when this happens, can we have a keyword? Can we have something like I am for me, my words are I'm deer in headlights like I am checked out. This is I'm no longer here. And that helps me step away from or even for me from going into to down that path that I know where it leads because it's always a pattern. It's always the same pattern. When I hit that deer in headlights mode, I'm not in my body. And so I can't be present for a conversation, even if my partner's there. It's like, I need to bring myself back. Uh, do you have any advice for how to help people have perhaps something in place before they get to that point? Before they get to the point where they're just really overwhelmed? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, well, first, I'm just going to go through my communication model really quickly. Yeah, so, please. Yeah, so, so the epic communication? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I giggle at this name, but I have to get comfortable with it. I call it the <laughs> communication model. <laughs> I think it sounds epic. It sounds perfect. Anyway, okay, so I'm just going to run through the letters really quick. The The E is emotional, so the empathy. The P is the physical, so the grounding skills. The I is the intellectual, so the validation. I intellectually understand where you're coming from. And the C is last, and that is compassion and action. The P can happen, the P, the physical, the grounding, that can and should happen whenever it needs to, before, during, after. So the P is all through it, even though it's the second letter. And the the E and the I don't necessarily have to happen in a particular order. So when you think about having a conversation with your partner, you might let someone go first and let them talk kind of in pieces rather than just like, you know, just go blah and tell their whole truth so that you can in turn mirror back what they're saying. So this is a little bit of like the Imago dialogue stuff, right? So, you know, you... Like Veronica says, I'm really upset that you broke my garden gnome when you were making out with Margie in the back lawn because that garden gnome was the last gift I had from my great grandma that I loved dearly. That's all I had left from her. And you didn't apologize. You went to work and you still haven't apologized. And I'm really upset and I'm really angry. Mark might might say, okay, so so I'm empathizing. You know, I, I hear that you're upset. I hear that you're angry at me, anything else, he pulls out all the emotional language he can. And again, if he sees that she is just shaking, he might say, I can tell you're really upset. Is there anything I can do right now to help you feel grounded? Yes. Can we sit on the sofa and can you just hold my hands while we speak and look me in the eye so I know you're with me? Yes, Mm -hmm. I can do that. Okay. Moving on to I, they're looking at each other and he might say the intellectual piece. I intellectually, I understand where you're coming from in this because I know that how much you loved your grandmother, so your great grandmother. So I understand how how you feel in this. Obviously, the conversation would be much longer than this. I'm not sure. And she feels seen and heard. And once he's pulled out all the emotional language, all everything, and she feels validated and and all that and all the way he's grounding her if she needs it, then at the end is the compassion and action where you might say, he might say, is there anything that I can do? And she's like, well, actually there, I looked on Yelp and there is a garden gnome fixer at the street corner. And if you do that, I will feel better about this situation. Now, of course he might have, they might have to switch it at some point and that's a whole thing. So this is one piece of how you can help ground yourself. I, I think, and obviously I could talk about this all day, but the the only other part that I will add is 
I see that a lot of times clients do not do proper timeouts. They get overwhelmed and then they're like, screw you. And they storm out and slam the door. Right. And so that leaves the person feeling that they might be broken up with. They feel like the conversation's disrespected and they feel like maybe the person doesn't love them anymore. So instead, if you're able to say something to the effect of, look, I'm getting really dysregulated right now, or I'm upset, I need to take a, a time out to get calm. I'm going to go for a jog or I'm going to go to the bathroom and do some deep breathing. I'll come back. I, I still love you. We're still going to finish this conversation and I'll be back in about whatever, 10 minutes or an hour. So that's very much a, a, a game changer. That is huge. I feel like if we could just get that as the human species, <laughs> how much we could avoid, you know, how much conflict comes downstream from not noticing and being aware in those crucial moments. That alone is huge. And when you were talking, I was I was thinking how what a brilliant model it is, you know, and I'm trying to lock this in for myself as well on, okay, these are the pieces I can be thinking about. What I've also encountered is sometimes it's not just one person being triggered. You know, it can be one person being triggered at first, but then that person being triggered might say something that then triggers their partner. And then you've got two dysregulated people. And you said the words, we all crave to be seen, heard, understood, right? But when you get two people that come at each other that both want to be understood at the same time, that creates a really specific pattern where nobody gets seen or heard and it kind of escalates. So how do we, how do we start building in some little like wave the white flag? You're seeing this big reaction on my face is what you just nutshelled. I've never heard another therapist in that nutshell. And it's, I, I actually coined a term to describe it because I couldn't find it anywhere in any kind of literature. And Language, you're person, please. What do you call you're that? And then I've ever heard say the same thing. I, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit, it's a little long-winded, is that? Please, we're, that's why we're talking, Kate. Like, please Great. share. I crave language. I crave, like, I want all of this. <laughs> okay, so I call it the double trigger moment. And I'm going to give you an example of it. It runs a little bit deeper than the way you described it. Like, imagine there's Monica and Ralph. I don't know why they're named that. Okay, Monica and Ralph. Uh, so Monica, when she was a child, her dad was an alcoholic and her mother encouraged her to take care of her dad when she was a teenager. And she always resented it. She felt that her dad was weak. She had a lot of rage around it that never got resolved. And then Ralph, when he was young, uh, he was bullied a lot. And still to this day, and he still has some unresolved trauma around it. And still to this day, if somebody raises their voice, he tends to unconsciously cower. You know, his shoulders go down, he looks down, he breaks eye contact, he starts talking in a lower voice. They're in love. When they get into a fight and she starts to get big, he starts to cower. When he starts to cower, that triggers her backstory with her dad and she gets bigger and angrier and then it keeps spiraling and he gets and it just it just gets worse and worse and worse. Yes, I fully understand. In my relationship, my my longer relationship with Marty, I there was a point where I realized we are triggering each other. You know, and it's not to each it's not our fault per se, like perhaps I own that I wasn't aware of my triggers. I'm much more aware now and I can hold space and I can notice when I'm triggered or someone else hopefully but yeah, I just, I noticed that we would get locked into these spiral patterns where it was just the same thing. So yeah, it's, double it's trigger, really, double trigger moment. 
Yeah, and it's really hard to get out of because anytime I ask a couple client, how old are you in that moment? The answer is like, I feel like I'm 10. I feel like I'm six. So you literally don't have any adults in the room in those moments. And so the way I have moved through that with my clients in my private practice is, so I'm going to answer this two ways really quickly. Um, In my private practice, I'll do separate individual sessions doing EMDR. Mm. Do EMDR on the trigger for this person separately, wait a few weeks for them to settle psychologically because that's heavy lifting in terms of uh, therapy work. Then I'll do the other target with the other person and I've saved marriages that way. And thank you for the work that you do. This is why I want this to come out more because I feel like it's really easy to judge and blame either ourselves or others, but I just feel like we are in this soup of relating to each other where we don't fully understand all the mechanisms of what's happening. And I think we're starting to have better tools, right? We're starting to understand our nervous system. We're starting to understand these patterns that we get locked into, but we need these tools and support to come, to come out. And sometimes we can't do that by ourselves. I mean, so many things I'm like, God, I would have changed it if I could do it by myself, but I'm like, I need help in these areas, you know, yeah. these pieces that I so desperately crave to heal and, and I think at, at large, I think most people would say like, yeah, I would love to not have the cycle repeat anymore. How do we, how do we do that? So how do we normalize this? How do we bring this out? And, you know, how do we give more people the tools that you're, you're delivering in your private practice? Right. So not everybody can afford to go to an EMDR therapist because that's even more expensive than a normal therapist, right? So let's go back to the same situation, you know, in that situation or or in any situation where you feel you might be getting triggered. And one way to know you're triggered is that you feel like your emotional response is even slightly bigger than what is warranted in a given situation. Mm. If your gut kind of tells you that, then you might be getting triggered, right? And so Would you know that is the other question. Would you know that or are your partners or people around you more cued into, wow, that was quite a, that was quite a big response that you had to that moment. Sometimes, yeah, either one way or another, sometimes people are aware of it and you're right, not always. It, you know, it takes somebody that is on some kind of an emotional intelligence journey to be willing to look at themselves in that way, but a lot of people are, certainly a lot of my and love people I know are. And so if you are at least at that awareness, then at that point, you can, again, this isn't about your thoughts. You can kind of turn off your noggin and get in touch with your emotions. Now, if you have a massive trauma history, you might not want to do this because this exercise will kind of, it will somewhat unlock your past and you have to know yourself. But if you feel like you're stable enough emotionally, this can help you know where things come from. So when you get upset like that, it's not about the story or your intellect. It's about getting in touch with your, your, with your emotions. What are you feeling right, right now? I'm feeling, and I'll give you an example. Like say uh, very quickly, say Bonnie and Mark are at a party and Mark keeps on flirting with Stella the whole time. And you know, and it's Bonnie's birthday party and she's feeling really upset about it. Right. But when she goes home, she's like, okay, well, it feels like he was being a little disrespectful because it was my birthday, but what is my part in it? And so she gets in touch with her emotions. She's like, okay, I was feeling really angry. I was feeling this. I was feeling that. I was feeling tense in my body. I'm getting in touch with all of that. Now I'm going to bridge back to the first or worst memory that comes up in my backstory that feels somatically in my body or emotionally similar and a memory of 
being at this gas station and her parents are driving off with her sister because her sister yet again is making the parents howl laughing and the parents are always laughing at her sister's jokes and they literally drive 10 miles down the road before they realize they've left her at the gas station you know Mm -hmm. and she always felt jealous and sad regarding her sister because it always felt like her parents loved them but loved her best and then at least she has awareness that that's what's getting triggered. You asked, you said a key phrase in there, Kate, that is beautiful. It's what was my role in this? Or what was my part? I think that you said, what was my part? And that's the piece that I, I bookmark for myself to say when something's happening, when I feel triggered, bringing the attention back to me that, and asking that question is really, really key. So these are, I, I feel like you're so in it. You're so good at it. You, he, you see people do all of these things, like you guide people through. And so I feel like it can be really easy to gloss over the pieces that might be hard for people that aren't in this work as much, even just to ask that question, the, what was my part in this? Because it gets so easy to just blame and put the, all the attention and focus outside of ourselves to say, well, he did this to me, she did that to me. But that question like, oh, what was my part in this? And what's coming up for me? Yeah, it's huge. And I will have to say, and I, I completely agree with you, but if I was just to add to, at least in my practice, I run into um, people, especially women that tend to be over givers and they always think it's their fault. And they actually, a lot of people actually do the opposite where they're oh. like, I, I'm, I'm just bad at non-monogamy and it's because I'm weak and they go into the shame spiral. And guess what? A lot of times that person is dating like a narcissist overtaker. And a lot of times that narcissist overtaker is actually uh, puppeteering. Like they know how to play that person just like a fiddle, you know? And so to change it where they're looking at both, like what is my responsibility in it and what is their responsibility? In oh my God, thank you. Can you see my bias? <laughs> Can you see my bias of where I go in my head all the time? Like, oh, what is my part in this? What is my part in this as well? well? You're mm -hmm. not the only one. It, it, I hear that a lot. And I have to, I think, you know, in our culture, there's, it's a, we have a lot of dominator culture. There's a dominator culture is our culture. So there's a lot of bigotry. There's a lot of misogyny. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of dominating people. And that shows up in non-monogamy as well. And let's let's face it, within non-monogamy, we've got tons of people who are doing it well, that are enjoying their themselves, that are having a fulfilling relationship. But there are a lot of people where uh, they date each other and it is, you know, like say a narcissistic person that has uh it, it may be a woman with internalized misogyny mm. and she's she's been conditioned to overgive mm -hmm. and then if the per if their partner has a lot of narcissism they need narcissistic fuel and guess what non-monogamy is a perfect place for narcissistic fuel because there's all these beautiful lovers that are potentially on board so you know to make sure that any given person is looking at their responsibility but also their partner's responsibility and not to just assume they're jealous yeah, I think it's crucial because otherwise narcissists can completely game the system and we don't or, or people that are infusing non-monogamy with some misogyny and dominator culture can game the system. And, and uh, that's the last thing I want, at least. Thank you for bringing all of this up. So what comes to me is that it's always a spectrum, right? So I could be totally on this question of, well, what, what is my part in this? What is my part in this? But then it's also just as valid to ask, well, what is the role of the other person? And so I thank you for bringing that up because it does take us being balanced and being able to be aware of both sides and to know perhaps where our tendencies fall. 
And yeah. the second part about dominator culture, yeah, that book by Rianne Eisler from Domination to Partnership, that was for me life-changing to understand that. Kyle and I recorded a podcast on that as well. And in fact, that was what made me want to interview you. I listened to one of your podcasts and in the first couple of minutes, you mentioned dominator culture and I'm like, Kate, got to have her on the, on Emory. So yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I feel like I've had to do a lot of work too to, to find those pieces of me and to, to start empowering myself. But yeah, back to your communication model. I would love to hear some, some of your success stories, what you see as possible as people learn some of the skills and tools and framework that you've, you've shared in your book. Uh, mm -hmm. What's possible for people to implement in your, in their life or what, what have you seen in your practice? Well, you know, as you know, everything's confidential, so I can't like get too specific, but I can say that for some couples, they come in and, you know, like I said, they're, they're lawyering up and a lot of times they're catastrophizing. They see some problem. They see that their person is anxious at the play party or whatever, and they jump from see witnessing their partner's anxiety to catastrophizing. You can't do this. There's no way you're going to ever be able to do this. I don't know why we're even trying that kind of thing. Like taking a couple that is at that place where there's, it's just so tense and then moving them into using something more similar to the Epic communication plan, their uh, model. They're not, they're not, they, they learn about their tone and how, and they're realizing their tone and how they speak impacts each other. They're starting to track their body that, you know, and it's all. And I also talk to them about their internal compass. Like you're a lot of people that I know because they're so bright and their brains have worked for them so well, or because they're traumatized and their body is a war zone. They live in their head mm. and I structure it. And I, I say, I feel that your internal compass is actually your thoughts, your emotions, and your body sensations working in tandem from a grounded centered place. Once I start to shift all of those things, because it's not one thing or another, it's like slowly shifting them as they show up. A lot of clients, you'll you'll see them. I've, I've had clients be like, wow, we were about to get a divorce and now we're doing great. You know? Wow. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. I'm sure also I can't help but to think that it impacts the relationship, but it also impacts their life in general. Because how we show up in our relationships is kind of how we show up in the world as well. So all of these skills and tools, I can imagine being applicable in career life and parental life and all parts. I've heard you talk about couples. Do you work with either individuals or have you worked with triads? Have you seen, I guess, give me a couple other examples of how that, how that might look to apply some of these practices for perhaps someone that's not currently in any relationships or maybe in a triad or different formation. Yeah. In my practice, basically, you know, people come in either as a couple or individually, and this is not my choice. This is what they choose. Mm -hmm. But outside, they may have any kind of formation. They might be living in a poly household. They may have kitchen table poly. They may be in the swing lifestyle. They may have a V formation, a quad, a a triad, you know, it, you name it. But at the end of the day, they always come in individually or as a couple. Maybe I think it's probably because, you know, as soon as you bring in three people, now I'm usually saying, okay, we need a session and a half or a double mm -hmm. session mm -hmm. or else nobody's going to feel heard. I think it's more about making sure that people feel heard. And then honestly, a lot of my clients, because they are busy, you know, they might be a movie director or, or this or that, 
you know, and they have kids and a lot of my clients, they don't have time. They like the idea of kitchen table, Polly, but to literally do that, not just in, it, like to literally be around a table and hash things out. They don't have time for that at all. Mm-hmm. Like they may, they may very much make sure that all people feel heard and of, do everything they can do to avoid things like couples privilege, et cetera, and so on. But it's not usually all happening simultaneously. Mm -hmm. I think they're kind of used to the dyad, even no matter what happens. Yeah. And that makes sense too, because we're always, our relationship is exists between two points or two things or two people. And Mm -hmm. even if you're in a triad, right, that's still, that's still three different relationships. So maybe a fourth, if you kind of picture the whole group mm-hmm. together. But yeah, no, that totally makes sense. So yeah. what else would you like the Emory audience to know about your book, about what you feel passionate of if, you know, if this were brought to the world in a, on a bigger scale? Yeah. Anything else you want the listeners to know about? Well, one thing that I just want to make note of is in a lot of these examples, uh, it was male, female examples, but I do have clients that are you know, gender queer, et cetera, and, and so on, and all kinds of different configurations. So I don't want anybody to think with my uh, language in this episode that I just have kind of like that polynormative dynamic or that the book is is completely, you know, the, the book is polynormative. Uh, so that's one thing that I would say. As far as the book goes right now, it's it's being sold wherever books are sold. And as I've kind of indicated throughout this session, it, it takes all, you know, I've been a therapist for just short of 20 years and it takes all my knowledge of, you know, couple therapy that I've learned globally. It's put through a non-monogamous lens. It has tons of vignettes all the way through it. It doesn't pull any punches. It, it, it tackles all the hard stuff that I feel has not been put in other books and it couples it with my knowledge of trauma, which is the stuff that I've been, which sounds heavy handed, but it's honestly the grounding skills, the tracking your body, all of that. And it blends the two. And you're right, more therapists, you know, more therapists are starting to do that. And there's a few in the non-monogamous sphere, like Nicoletta Heidinger, Jamila Dawson. We're going to see more coming down the pike with non-monogamous thought leaders that are blending these two tracks that have uh, historically been parallel and not integrated. Mm. Oh, thank you. No, I'm so excited. I can't wait until I get the book in my hands. So it is already published. It's available. It's available for pre-sale. It is published on April 19th. You can get it wherever books are sold. You can get it paperback, Kindle, or audiobook. The audiobook isn't going to show up for sale on, until the 19th, but it will show up. Yeah. All right. Audiobook, that's my jam. I'm going to have to get that. Also, where do where can people find you if they want to learn more? If you're still accepting clients, how do they reach you? I have a website, katelurie.com. I'm on Instagram, Instagram and TikTok at Open Deeply with Kate Lurie. I'm on Facebook. Mostly I use Instagram right now, but I'll probably start using TikTok more. But definitely, I, and Twitter, I'm on Twitter, but I honestly don't use it that much. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm like, I will not do TikTok, but uh, I know I know that it's uh, out there. It can be uh, helpful. So just so listeners know, you spell your name, Kate, K-A-T-E-L-O-R-E-E, right? Yes. Okay. Fantastic. And the book is called Open Deeply. And I'm so excited for you to continue sharing this knowledge. I hope to have you back on here again at some point so we can keep 
talking. I want to be able to be more informed and have read the book and ask you really maybe more precise questions. But for now, I think what you shared here with the epic communication style, and I'm looking forward to really, for me, practicing that. And I'm just so happy for all the work that you've done and taking your personal and professional experiences and blending them and being brave enough to step into the space and support other people in many, many ways. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for creating a podcast that has such a strong heartbeat. There's a lot of non-monogamous podcasts that are, that are all intellectual, that you know unpack things in this very intellectual way. And this is the first podcast where I was like, oh, this has such a yummy heartbeat to it. And I instantly loved it. Oh, thank you. That means so much. I really, honestly, my philosophy is that I'm not going to be able to share anything like people don't learn from that, just purely that intellectual side. I think we learn by hearing other people's stories. So I made a decision before we started recording that I was just going to share. I'm just going to share and people take what they take and, and that's it. And also it's been super therapeutic for me to be able to just, just be right just share and learn and grow together. And I so appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you, Kate. Can we say to be continued? Absolutely. I'll come on whenever you ask me. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Emory podcast. I hope you walked away with something that perhaps you didn't have before you started listening. I invite you, if you got something out of this, to please share, well, first subscribe if you're not a subscriber, then share with anybody you think might be interested. If you want to support us in continuing to make content like this, please consider joining as a patron and check out amorypodcast.com for all the offerings that we have. We now have two online courses. One is Transforming Jealousy. The other is The Self-Love Journey. I'm offering the eight-week self-love journey occasionally throughout the year, and we've got an ongoing conversation called, you guessed it, The Conversation for anyone that wants to keep conversations like this alive in their life. It makes a huge difference to know that you've got a place you can go to feel safe and to talk about whatever's on your mind. So thanks so much for listening. Please thank you for sharing. Please join us in any way that you feel called to. Until next time, take care. Thank you.